Hi, my name is Jens. And my name is Kylie. You're listening to World Class Podcast. Kylie. Yes. When was the last time that you actually read an interesting academic paper? Well, I'm in university, so I actually am reading them a lot. If I wasn't in a university, I never would. Yeah, I understand that completely because, let's be honest, they are really boring. <laughs> Today, our topic is China. We have two academic theories to break down, but also two interviews to play. But before we start getting into those boring topics, Jens, could you tell us a bit about the history of China? Of course I could. We have a very big country with a very big population, mm -hmm. but also a country that has been some ups and downs, I would say. Mm -hmm. In more recent history, China has gone through uh, what they call the century of humiliation, which was from 1839 to 1949. Century of humiliation sounds pretty bad. Yeah, it was It was not so nice. Okay. Um, actually, what happened was that they had uh, the Opium Wars between 1839 and 1865, which was humiliating because the Brits kind of colonized the country and mm -hmm. turned its population into opium addicts. At the same time, you know, reaping all the profits from selling the substance. Mm-hmm. Japan was also uh, imperialistic towards China. They wanted to colonize the country, both informally but also practically. They had a ma massacre on the Chinese population in uh, 1937 and 1938. Mm. It was called the Massacre of Nanjing. The Chinese are still angry at Japan for that. Mm. After that, it didn't get any better. Then there was a guy called Mao. I don't know if you've heard about him. I have, actually, yeah. Great guy, <laughs> as Trump would say. So Mao, he had this great idea to uh, take a great leap forward. Which means? Which means that he wanted to collectivize the industrial culture, but at the same time also build up industrial capacity. He was watching the world, you know, having the industrial revolutions, mm -hmm. and he was thinking, why don't we do that the communist way? Okay. He really did his best, Mao, to do it the communist way. <laughs> But he, um, yeah, he, he, he did some horrible things. What happened was that he ordered everyone to bring all the metal that they have. Every single citizen in China had to hand in their metal. That could be like cooking gear or okay. pots and pans, whatever. They had uh, consisting of metal that it had to be handed in in order to be remelted into steel bars. Steel bars for industrialization. Yeah, exactly. Okay. At the same time, he ordered everyone to work towards this industrial goal. Mm. So he basically told all farmers and everyone working in all the other sectors of the country to stop doing that, resulting in crops not being harvested, in animals not being fed, and eventually in a huge famine. There's actually a debate about how many people died in this uh, Great Leap Forward. It was between 30 and 70 million people. Wow. And some scholars even say way more, but no one actually knows. Okay. After the Great Leap Forward, Mao he got another great idea. A cultural revolution. Oh, I've unfortunately also heard about this. <laughs> Now we are actually in uh, 1966. Uh, Mao, he thought that the cultural elite of China, they were like too smart, too better knowing than everyone else. Mm -hmm. So he ordered all intellectuals to be sent into villages in order to do manual labor. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Doesn't seem like the best idea. I mean, actually, like in theory, it could be smart somehow to have people get another perspective. Right. But you then know? that also led to there being no sort of philosophical or ideological innovation in China, right? Because there was nothing left because everyone was just sent away. Yeah. 
there was no one innovating or and i mean i think at some point you have to cater to people's talents not just yeah. make them so basically this all meant that china stagnated completely in 1969 china's gdp growth was nothing there was nothing going on the whole country was just mm. on the on the edge of a collapse yeah people living below poverty line, poverty line in great numbers but then we had deng xiaoping okay. taking over from mao so Xiaoping, he, want, he wanted uh, the country to open up for capitalism. And since then, China has actually grown a lot economically. From 1981 to 2008, 600 million people were lifted out of uh, absolute poverty. And the industrial sector in China is more and more high-tech. As we have seen, it's actually also turning into an information uh, technology sector, which is what we have in the West. Mm-hmm. All of this uh, means that more and more people are entering middle class. Mm-hmm. It means that China is entering the world stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, because obviously more money means more power. Mm-hmm. Xi Jinping, the president of China right now, yeah. he's kind of having like a personality cult uh, around him because he has, in a way, been the front person of this massive change right. in recent years. Right, this new growth that China's been Exactly. So all of this brings us to today. Mm-hmm. Um, there is more or less agreement that China has risen today, yes. which means that it's not... A developed, an undeveloped country, country, but actually a serious contester for mm-hmm. in the world game of the world order. Mm-hmm. So we'll be talking about yeah. two of the main aspects surrounding the rise of China today, especially in the world of academics, namely power and economy. Yes, this we will do uh, through a theory called power transition theory, and also the idea of state capitalism. Exactly. With that being said, Kylie. I think what we need right now is actually a new jingle. Because our last one didn't go over so well. So the word of the day today is, it's actually pronounced two different ways. I'm from Canada, so over there we call it hegemony. Yeah, I'm from uh, Europe, and uh, here we call it hegemony. But I, we, we debated about this for a while, and we realized that it actually is pronounced both ways. It just depends where you're coming from. Actually, what Kylie did, she went on YouTube, and she Googled uh, pronouncing hegemony, and then there was this sweet little <laughs> Canadian girl pronouncing it in both ways, and like it kind of settled the argument. Between it did. Them. It was a really nice way of settling it. All right, hegemony. So the idea of hegemony, pronounced with a hard or soft G, is... The idea of power over one group or other groups. Hegemony is mostly used to refer to relationships between different nations or countries. And this might be in forms of direct dominance through military might, but it also might be in forms of indirect dominance, such as when a nation can dictate terms of trade to its advantage. I think the biggest thing with just when you're talking about hegemony is to understand that it's not just about like I said, the hard military power, but also about the influencing of other countries through more soft balancing methods. Does that make sense, Jens? Yeah, it makes sense, totally. Okay. So it's just like, it's another way of talking about dominance of power in a way? Yeah, I think it's a way of categorizing power into its most dominant form. So for example, you could be a powerful country um, or you could be a dangerous country, maybe with like radical ideas or um, with authoritarian regimes, but Really, if you're not a global hegemon or a regional hegemon, then you're actually, you're not as big of a concern to the world order 
All right, than so, a hegemon would be, so, or a superpower. Now that we've talked about that, it actually will be way easier to talk about China and the U.S. when Yen starts to talk about power transition theory, because those are two, well, the U.S. is sort of thought of as the world's global hegemon, but now that China's rising, it's more of a contestation to that. Totally true. Uh, actually, what power transition theory is all about is actually the position of uh, hegemon. Mm, right. Um, in the world, and I will. I, I think the way I will do this is that I will. I will start to explain the traditional power transition uh, theory, the first one that okay. got the whole debate started, and from there on, uh, I will explain a critique of the the traditional theory, kind of shooting it down and saying this is not true, blah blah blah. And then in the end, I will try uh, to explain a third theory, which is the revised traditional power transition theory, which blends in new elements of uh, liberalism that, dear listener, you will have to have listened to our first program in order to understand completely. We're incentivizing continued listening. This is not advertising. For your greater smartness. Exactly. So I think it's clear to everyone who uh, follows international relations just a little bit that it is the relation between the United States and China that is the defining relationship of the time to come and actually also of the time right now. Yes. I would agree. Those are the two big powers. In order to understand why Americans and American scholars are spending so much time analyzing China, it should maybe be mentioned that no other country through history has been able to sustain such a level of growth that China has, which is actually 9% of GDP per year for the last 25 years. Yeah, that's actually incredible. That's pretty nice. Mm -hmm. Imagine going up 9% in, uh, in your salary every year for like 25 years. I don't think years. I've ever gone up 9% in my salary. Me neither. <laughs> so doing it 24 years in a row, that's pretty nice. Yeah. Okay. So what is the central claim of power transition theory? It is a claim that uh, a rising power will want to overtake the leader in international system. And this will be a conflict which will be violent. So basically, there will be a power transition and it will be violent because the rising power will be dissatisfied with the current situation. Mm -hmm. While... The hegemon, the the United States, let's yes. just call it like it is, okay. will be satisfied. The power transition theory also contests that all international systems have been created in a way that benefit the hegemon. So you can look at, for example, the United Nations or other international systems like the World Trade Organization. And you can agree that they have been created in order to benefit trade of the, the U.S. and in order to benefit values like human rights, which is also like an, a Western invention. And that the rising power will be dissatisfied with all these things. So they will want okay. to change it. And the only way to change these things is through war. That's Yikes. the traditional theory. Then we have a scholar called John Mearsheimer. He is a classical realist. He is like the most classical realist. Okay. Classic John. <laughs> He's uh, Classic John. Cla let's call him Classic John. Okay. CJ. Um, <laughs> CJ, he <laughs> believes in power transition theory. He, he really does. And he believes in offensive realism. If you remember, okay. realism means that uh, all states are aggressive and want to secure that territory. Yeah, and are motivated by power. And a lot and more things security. you have to listen to our other program to yeah. understand. Um, anyway, John Mearsheimer, he thinks that realism is the way that the international relations work and that it's offensive realism uh, that is the truth, which means that the ultimate goal for any great power is to dominate uh, the world of international relations. Because of the structures created by the dominant power, uh, the power transition will have to be violent. Uh, China will want to challenge these systems. He also makes the argument historically that the uh, United States, they have through history kind of defeated all previous attempts to be overtaken as the hegemon. And he mentions Im 
Imperial Germany and Imperial Japan and Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union as like historical examples. Of when the U.S. has um, Every single time, you know, there has been a conflict in the world where yeah. one other power looked to uh, to rise. Like Nazi Germany, for example, Germany looked to become regional hegemon in Europe. Yeah. And the U.S. right Shut away step in and, and stop it because okay. they don't want anyone else to become as big as they are. Mm -hmm. And he's basically saying this will happen again. Now we have China rising and the U.S., they don't want that to happen. So, yeah, he's really pessimistic and negative. He says war is uh, coming. <laughs> um, classic John. Classic John. <laughs> okay, so he says that China will become regional hegemon in Asia. Uh, this John says this. Yeah. The okay. concept of uh, regional hegemony is basically that um, it will not be possible to achieve world dominance because we are too advanced with democracy and with other things to, to dominate the whole world. Okay. But it would be possible to have regional hegemony too. So China could have power over Asia, essentially. Yeah. Like okay. in terms of trade, in terms of uh, influence, they will not necessarily use military but they could do it, but mm -hmm. it's not certain that they will use military. Yeah. He says it's the tragedy of great power politics. Simply that no goodwill, no good intentions to, for peace or you know values will change the hard fact that a really, really, really powerful country will right. want to you know secure its position. Okay, so there's no way out. There's no way out. From that perspective. It's tragic, it's how it is. Okay. Steve Chan. Yes. Another scholar. Yes. He says, John... Listen to me. This is BS. Why? You're do being you... a little bit too classic, John. Yeah, this is really you need to offensive. Update. You know, you're being offensive. Okay. Really. Mm -hmm. There is another way out, he says. Power transition theory is a hegemony of ideas created oh. by Western scholars. It's another way of saying that some paranoid old people, they are sitting in the US fearing China to come and, you know, take their jobs <laughs> and whatever. And. This is just how it is, you know, all the texts we're reading, even all the texts we have here in the studio are, you know, written by Western scholars and right. they have a Western perspective on international relations. Yeah. So that's one argument against the power transition theory, that it reflects the views of the dominant power. Which you could say is constructivist. Yeah, you could for say. For those who listened to our last program. <laughs> this is the third time we make advertising. <laughs> it's fine. You should listen to it. It's really nice. It's really good. Yeah. Okay, so he says, how should we measure, measure power? Um, is it military? Is it money? Is it cultural influence? How to measure power? How mm. to make sure that China is even up there where it can contest with the U.S. when right. it comes to power? No one mentions how to me measure power, just that there is a power transition. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes they measure military, uh, mention military, sometimes mention something else. He makes a historical argument which kind of counters the power transition argument. He says that, well, throughout history, it has been a strategic calculation that has decided if a state wanted to, you know, defend its position as hegemon hmm. in the world. The UK used to be hegemons before the US prior to World War II. Mm -hmm. But actually what happened was that the UK, they handed over power to the US peacefully because they could see a, an interest in doing so because mm. they were, you know, collaborating. So there's examples of when there's been a power transition and it hasn't been ended in a massive war, essentially, is what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He says that um, there is not one theory of power transition. Uh, great powers, they can either be angry or satisfied with handing over their hegemony if they are challenged. And also... Right. More importantly, rising powers don't need to be dissatisfied. With their situation. Yeah. Or with the status quo. Because as Johnny uh, Mersheimer 
he he's, he's arguing that China is really dissatisfied. Steve John, he actually says, why is this so? Why would you be dissatisfied with rising, having 9% of GDP growth yeah. every year? Why would that make you dissatisfied? And on the contrary, China seems to be pretty satisfied with where they're at right now. Exactly. So he says... The crucial thing to do is to understand the rising power. Oh, okay. If you don't understand the rising power, if you just suppose that they are dissatisfied, like all the American scholars are doing, mm-hmm. then of course you will be paranoid and you will think this will end in war. But yeah. if you actually understand what they're doing, are they happy, are they not? How do they see themselves in international relations? Mm-hmm. And when we look at China's foreign policy and their idea of how to act on an international stage, they've sort of actually taken up a position of shrugging international responsibility and sort of taking a more non-interventionist approach, actually. Sort exactly. of remaining silent but deadly. So I think that actually China's a great example of how this theory could be challenged exactly. going forward. Exactly. So he makes the argument that actually the U.S. would be more inclined to start a war because they are the ones losing power and they are oh. the ones being dissatisfied. Right. You know, he's turning the theory upside mm-hmm. down. He's saying the dissatisfied power will be the one losing Losing um, it. Losing it. <laughs> and the satisfied power will be the one growing. Right. And yeah. also, strategically, it would make more sense for China not to start a war because the longer it waits, the stronger it will get and the weaker the U.S. will get. So, so it's not really in their interest at He's all. basically rejecting the whole uh, theory of power transition and saying that there is not one theory. We have to make sure how to measure power. We have to make sure what intentions they are. Uh, are they dissatisfied or satisfied? Yeah. So he's talking about two types of uh, rising powers, the status status quo yeah, and quo. The, the revisionist rising power will want to challenge the international systems and go into conflict. The status quo Rising power is happy and mm. is just happy to rise. Okay, I get that. So this brings us to our third academic text concerning power transition theory. Okay. And actually the one I like the most. Um, okay. This one is by Carsten Rauch and Iris Wurm. I think they're Germans. <laughs> I'm not sure. I think you're right. <laughs> I think so. Um, Carsten Rauch and Iris Wurm, they have come up with this brilliant fusion of theories. Mm. They are saying power transition is true to some degree because they were foreseeing the end of American hegemony. Right. And this is happening. They agree with that. They say in the future, the USA will lose power, both uh, hard power in terms of military, Mm -hmm. but also soft power in terms of cultural influence. Okay. So the debate about power transition is still relevant. Which, I mean, we can already see already. Sorry, I just need to say that. That's totally true. Because, I mean, with the election of Trump, I don't think that... And even before that, with George W. Bush's war on terror, the U.S. is... It's um, not so in to be... Uh, their reputation abroad hasn't really been gra- yeah. that great. They have bad PR. Yeah. <laughs> internationally. <laughs> so the U.S. will fail. The U.S. will fail, and it's a matter yeah. of time. And what will happen? They are asking the same questions as the, as the other two, but where Johnny, he's uh, predicting war, and Chan, he's saying nothing will happen. Uh, they are saying it will happen, but how should we react to it? And so they're saying that when it comes to power... In terms of GDP, mm-hmm. no one can come close to the U.S., but when it comes to measuring power in terms of GDP growth, China is up there, becoming okay. more and more relevant, as we talked about earlier. So, yeah. I mean, they're, they are actually also talking about how to measure power, and they are yeah. putting forward these two different ways. They are talking about how there is both unipolarity. Uh, so unipolarity is essentially just the dominance of one hegemon over the rest of the world. There's no sort of balance from another power contradicting it. Nailed it. So they're saying there's unipolarity when it comes to uh, GDP and military, but there's also power change at the same time because Mm. you have rapid GDP growth from China, also from India, from Brazil um, at the same time. And uh, this is all, you know, altering 
power structures. So he's, uh, they are talking about a mixture of unipolarity and power trans transition theory uh, in order to understand the current situation. Actually, they want to bridge this gap between the conflict and the war that power transition theory predicts and the peaceful status quo that is also predicted by people who don't believe in power transition. And they want to do this by introducing something called liberal hegemony. It's pretty common for scholars to invent their own terms because then if it should happen to become mm -hmm. a term that is used by a lot of scholars, they will get famous. So they invent, you know, not one but two terms. They, inv they invent liberal hegemony and they also invent peaceful power transition theory. We can call it PPTT. It doesn't make it less uh, horrible to uh, <laughs> to pronounce, but anyway. So they're saying that only dissatisfaction with status quo will make a country become aggressive. Yep. And China will not be dissatisfied because they will become regional hegemons. They will have a lot of influence in Asia. Oh, so okay. they, they will not be dissatisfied. They will yep. have a lot of countries, you know, uh, acting in ways they would like them to. And they will have a lot of power and they will continue to grow and become more influential. But there is one but. If they don't feel taken seriously by the international society that could create tension. Oh. And in order to be taken serious, this is why they call it liberal hegemony. There has have to be institutions, which is what liberalism is all about. There has to be institutions where all countries will feel like they have a voice. Oh, and feel represented. Yeah, this is a way of bridging, you know, in, in yeah. realism, it's state against state. But mm -hmm. in liberalism, you have institutions. Yeah, as a powerful actor. Yeah, and they are making the argument that the US, in order to secure a peaceful power transition, should change the international institutions in a way so that China will feel uh, heard and feel taken seriously and feel like they have just as much power as uh, the US has have now. So that's liberal hegemony. Exactly. Okay. That's basically creating a structure that is multilateral. So basically by having a liberal hegemony where there is institutions that can be kind of securing peaceful power decisions, they argue that a peaceful power transition would be not even be possible but necessary. They place emphasis in their paper in the responsibility to, that U.S. actually has to accommodate these changes because okay. the U.S. have the power now. So they should, for the sake of mankind, make sure that China will feel satisfied mm -hmm. also in the future. Because, I mean, we could even update the theories of classic John and the rest of the traditional power theorists to kind of talk about the rise of nuclear weapons too. It just doesn't really make sense that China would want to blast the world and same for the United States. There has to be a different alternative now. Totally right. Yeah. It, I, it, it's just a matter of making sure that everyone is happy in a way yeah, in the international uh, institutions. Because yeah. right now, US, they obviously have advantages that at some point China, they will, will want to get in on. Makes but sense. that doesn't mean that China wants to start a nuclear war. Well, that's really interesting. I actually learned a lot. Thank you. So what Jens was just talking about, especially the ideas of regional hegemony in Asia by China, are going to be really relevant in an interview that we have coming up next that Jens and I did with master's student Maria Kirch, a scholar of Chinese studies or Sinology in Aarhus, Denmark. And she told us a lot about how China is using its influence in Central Asia. Have a listen. Hi, Maria. Hi, Kylie. Could you tell us a little bit more about your academic and your professional background? Sure. Um, I have a bachelor's degree in China studies and a minor in political science. And right now I'm doing the master in international studies. But parallel to that, I'm also a volunteer and a board member at SILBA, which is a Danish NGO that arranges election observation missions. Okay, great. Can you tell us a little bit more about what an election observation mission is exactly? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Uh, actually, it's... It says that if you're a member of the OSCE, then you have to have international observers and national observers to observe your elections. 
um, to state that they're free and fair. Denmark even has to have international observers. So what SILPA does is that we deploy international observers to the membership countries. And they observe the election and they state, was it free or was it fair? So today we're talking about China. Thanks for coming on our show to t- chat a little bit more with us about that. We know that you were recently in Kyrgyzstan. And we were wondering if you could tell us a bit more about your time there and also how you saw China present there. Uh, well, so it was also an election observation mission in Kyrgyzstan. It was the first we've done in Central Asia with Silba. And um, basically it was a very interesting election because it turned out to be the first peaceful transition of power in Central Asia, as a matter of fact. Oh. Um, as for China, they're not present in the political sphere, to, so to say. Um, they're there. But it's not like in Russia, or for instance, the presence of Russia in Central Asia, which is that all politicians are pro-Russian. All politicians have to be pro-Russian. Mm, okay. Why do they have to be pro-Russian? Because it's the former Soviet, and the Russian influence is still really heavy. And most of the Kyrgyz people, for instance, speak Russian sometimes even better than they speak Kyrgyz. So okay. Russia still has a lot of power in the region. But regarding China, your studies, have they made you aware of what they're doing in order to be present in the region? Um, the big project that has influence on Central Asia at the moment is the Belt and Road Initiative. You probably know it as One Belt, yeah. One Road, but mm-hmm. it changes the names all the time. <laughs> okay, so now it's Belt and Road Initiative. Yeah, because uh, the Chinese okay. government felt that One Belt, One Road put too much stress on one, and it's not really one road or one belt, it's <laughs> okay. a network. Yeah, I saw okay. the map, it's definitely more than one. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so in, the idea was to, by calling it one to emphasize the unity, Uh, which turned out to cause a bit of a misunderstanding because, you know, it has a corridor going to Moscow. It has a corridor going to Istanbul. So they went with Belt and Road Initiative. Could you talk a little bit more about it? Uh, How will the opening of this uh, Belt and Road Initiative uh, change uh, the position of China? Oh, that's hard to say. Um, It's always hard to predict the future. But obviously it will give them greater economic power, which is the way that China gains power internationally. Um, Not like... The, like the way U.S. does by spreading democracy, it's through economic interdependency. Mm-hmm. So if China can make Central Asia economically interdependent or economically dependent on China, then they'll start gaining power. Okay, that's really interesting. Um, earlier in our program, Jens was talking about power transition theory. And this is basically just a theory of international relations regarding rising powers versus, you know, present hegemonic powers. And... Um, One of the things that the traditional power transition theory talks about is that if a rising hegemon or actor is behaving in a way which makes the region they're rising in dissatisfied, the region will unite against the rising power. Do you think that this is something that is applicable with China rising in the rest of Asia? Do you think that Asia sort of wants to unite against China? Well, there is a joke among sinologists that all theories end where China begins. So you're saying we we just don't know or... Yes, basically, because um, political scientists have been proven wrong by China for 40 years almost. So people who support the theory of modernization have been predicting that, you know, as the living standard in China rises, the demand for democracy will also rise. And if they've been saying, like, for the past 20 years, oh, that now, this year, we will see the rebellion that leads to democracy. Okay, this year we'll see it. This year we'll see it. And we haven't Mm -hmm. seen it so far. There have been rebellions, yeah, but none of them big enough. So that's why we often say that, you know, theories end where China begins. And that's basically a way of saying, yes, it makes perfect sense what you're saying, and I could see it happening, but we've seen China prove the exact opposite so many times, so it could also simply be that Central Asia decides to go with it and Mm. say, hey, let's unite with China. What do you think is sort of the general sentiment of people or governments in Central Asia towards China, especially with their new economic development in the area? 
Okay, so、uh, my impression from Kyrgyzstan was that there's a huge gap between the people's sentiments toward China and the government sentiment toward China.、Uh, for instance, when I arrived in Kyrgyzstan in the capital Bishkek, I was told that the mayor of Bishkek has just been given a grant from, from the Chinese government to renew all the roads in Bishkek. So, in the governments and in the among the politicians, there is a support for the economic engagement, and there is a, a sort of an agreement to be part of this network. Whereas, for the people, what I sense is that first of all, China is not very present in their mind, and second of all, when you look, especially online, at Kyrgyz activists, they are very、um, anti-Chinese because of the Xinjiang issue. Could you elaborate on that? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, the Xinjiang issue is、um, Western China. The biggest province in Western China is called Xinjiang. It means new territory because it was the last province that was added to the Chinese Empire before the emperor fell,、okay. and it is a Traditionally, Turkic people. So their language resembles Turkish more, and they're very, very related to the Kazakhs and the Kyrgyz people and the Uzbek、mm-hmm. people. Actually, closer related in terms of language and culture than they are to Beijing, and they're also Muslim. And there has been a rise in radicalization and, in general, you know,、um, religiousness in Central Asia. And the same is true for Xinjiang. And、um, the Chinese government has tightened their grip on Xinjiang a lot. So there's a lot of oppression and there's a lot of lack of basic freedom in Xinjiang, and especially in Kyrgyzstan, there's a lot of support for the Uyghurs, as they're called, the people of Xinjiang. You sometimes see online when you check out、uh, forums that you see Kyrgyz people referring to it as East Turkestan or Uyghurstan rather than Xinjiang. Mm. Mm. Okay. So,、um, talking about、uh, radicalization, I know that China is、uh, collaborating with、um, with、uh, Kyrgyzstan in de-radicalization.、Um, but do you see any、uh, other examples of、um, collaboration between China and Central Asia that can make the future look maybe bright and not scary? <laughs>、uh, well, again, that's China's economic engagement, and that's how they cooperate through economy.、Mm-hmm. This、uh, de-radicalization initiative is something. Very new and also something very different.、Uh, but I would say that first of all, the economic cooperation, for instance, through the Belt and Road Initiative, is definitely the strongest cooperation and the strongest tie that will bind them together. But probably the de-radicalization cooperations will be the most important. For instance, China recently had to、um, almost give up of, on a huge plan of the Belt and Road Initiative because of ISIL. You know, they had recently redirected their、uh, oil import. So that 20% of their oil import would come from Iraq and Syria, and then who seized Iraq and Syria and the oil production? When we talked about power transition theory earlier in our program, we were also saying that a big flaw of the theory is that a lot of、uh, experts say it's difficult to measure power, and that's why it's difficult to measure when a country will rise or if they're rising. But I guess what you're saying is in China, their biggest source of power is economic intervention and economic growth. Yes, for sure, and that's also how they sort of flex their muscles. All right. I think、uh, on that note,、um, I will say thank you very much for coming into the studio. Yeah, thank you so much for talking、Maria. with us. It's very interesting. Yeah, we learned a lot. Well, thank you for inviting me. It was fun. <laughs>、nice. Okay, great. Talk to you soon. Wait, what? Talk to you soon. We'll <laughs> cut it out. Don't worry. <laughs> Thank you to Maria for、uh, yeah, joining our again, show,、Maria. our first、uh, actual guest. Hopefully, 
the first Hopefully of many. Hopefully not the last. Yeah. <laughs> actually, it's not the last because we have one more in this show already. Thank goodness. <laughs> and the interview was actually also recorded already. So I know for sure we have at least one more guest. But uh, Kylie, before we we get to that guest, uh, we have to talk about state capitalism, mm-hmm. which yes. is our next uh, academic theory. Yeah, it's actually not so much a theory, but an economic system. But I'm going to do my best to explain it in a way that's understandable. Okay, so a state capitalism, what is it? Essentially, state capitalism is the blend of the power of the state with the power of capitalism. It's a system where the government has more control, but the economic system is still open to globalization and international markets. Okay, so it kind of combines um, state control with liberal markets. Yeah, exactly. And liberal market is just sort of what we all sort of what we're used to in the West. Observe, yeah, in the Western society, um, liberalization, privatization, open trade barriers. Well, essentially, if you look at the development of economics after the Industrial Revolution, that's sort of when the liberal market really took off, and it just was a call for less regulation on business and trade, and that meant more privatization. So companies owned privately instead of by the state and more deregulation on uh, the economy and on trade policies. And it really took off, especially when globalization became more prominent in the world. So that would have been in the 1980s, even maybe in the late 1970s. And that's also sort of when state capitalism really became what it is today. State capitalism has been around for a really long time all over the world. And it has happened in all countries, really. Most markets need a helping hand from the state to get their foot on the door to start flourishing. Um, we had the East India Trading Company in Britain um, back in the time of colonization. Lots of theorists have described different types of state capitalism in the Western countries all over the world. But when we talk about state capitalism, mostly now in the current context, we mention the BRICS. So what are Brazil. the BRICS? Yeah. So the BRICS are Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. Um, and those countries have been rising sort of throughout the last 30, 20 or 30 years. And they all sort of follow the same or not the same uh, method of state capitalism, but they all employ state capitalism in a more significant way than the rest of the Western world, which is why when you're usually talking about state capitalism, they all come into the conversation. But today, obviously, we'll just be focusing on China. And maybe we should say that The reason why BRICS are so interesting to talk about is because they represent a association or like a, a mutual, some mutual economic interests that mm-hmm. differ significantly from the West and from liberal mm-hmm. capitalism. Yeah. And because they have grouped together in this BRICS, uh, they should be taken seriously. Yeah, and I actually will get to that at the end of my Um, segment because that's a really big concern that especially the West has on the rise of the BRICS and right, the way okay. their economy work. Um, state capitalism as a tradition, like I said, has always existed in in the world, but also in China, but it didn't take its current form until it was blended with globalization in the 1980s when Deng Xiaoping's transformation of China or the Great Reformation and opening of China happened. And this was when China embraced globalization set up special economic zones for different industries, invited in foreign investment and foreign companies, and forced state-owned enterprises to model themselves more after Western companies, so become a little bit more liberal and corporate-like in their management. (laughs) Really, it just meant that China was becoming a little bit more like the West. We sort of kind of changed 
the way that they had done their economy in the past and sort of, you know, break through into this new opportunity that they saw in, in globalization. And Deng Xiaoping has really been credited with giving China its massive growth in economy during the 1980s. Because after that point, China became the world's fastest growing economy. And that's a trend that continues to today. Yeah, we have talked about that a little already, yeah. how they had uh, 9% uh, growth in GDP mm-hmm. for 25 years in a row. Yeah, exactly. Like um, on average. And that's yeah. not slowing down really nope. anytime soon. But why is modern day state capitalism stronger than it has been in the past? If it has existed for so, so, for so long, why are experts so concerned about what it has turned into today? And so we have a couple answers on that. Um, first of all, it's happening on a wider scale than it has in the past. China's population is now the largest in the world, and state capitalism is not just existing there. It's existing also in Russia and India and Brazil. And as we know, India also has a massive population as well. It's also coming together more quickly. So a lot of countries that have adopted state capitalism have seen large growth in their economy in just a few short years. China especially, it has become the world's, like I said before, second largest economy in a relatively short period of time compared to, say, a country like the United States, which took much longer to get to where they are today in terms of economy. And modern-day state capitalism also uses much more sophisticated tools than it has in the past. So China's government now has various methods of surveying its citizens, which they've never had before, um, information technology that they've never had before. And China's also learned how to manage its companies better, its state-owned companies better. Nowadays, state-owned enterprises are employing managers with world-class business educations. Uh So they're becoming more productive and more efficient than they have been in the past. And a lot of Chinese leaders have tried to make them less corrupt than they have been in the past as well. So that's kind of why they're posing a bit more of a threat. But I think before we really go into that, we need to really discuss about how state capitalism itself is actually manifested. Uh-huh. Yeah, that would be uh, that would be good. Yeah, and obviously this can happen in many different ways, and I won't be able to touch on all of them, but essentially state capitalism means that there's just an unparalleled degree of control. In China, the government has the strongest degree of control over its economy compared to any other state capitalist society. Basically, state capitalism functions directly and indirectly, so the government has control over certain companies, which are called state-owned enterprises, but also practices its influence in more covert ways in private companies. And while there are some still forms of direct control, a lot of the control that the government uses is through owning shares. So the UN Conference on Trade and Development defines a state-owned enterprise as one in which the state owns more than 10% of shares. And in China... That's not a lot, actually. No, it's, it's really actually not that much. And that's why... Like I said before, state capitalism exists in a lot of other countries. There's lots of state-owned businesses in Europe. Yeah, I mean, in Denmark, in we have a lot of uh, of state-owned uh, businesses, yeah. actually. Yeah, it's just the the nature of the control is different in China, and they're also, they own much more. So, for example, China owns all of its shares in the China Ocean Shipping Company, and 80% of shares in Sinopec, and 90% of shares in PetroChina, which are both massive oil companies or energy companies in China. Another way that state capitalism is manifested is through the Chinese government working very closely with Chinese companies abroad, so favoring Chinese companies abroad over other companies from other countries, and it also really directs money to favored industries. The government works to direct money to favored industries, which sort of kind of predicts more winners 
in they, they can kind of choose who the winners and losers are going to be in terms of the economy and really the pattern that we see is that the Chinese government has really focused funds into the raw material and resources industries and the most successful sector that state capitalism flourishes is in flourishes in is infrastructure for example China has tons of new airports and roads all across the country they have an amazing high-speed rail system um, they've invested a lot of money into the information superhighway and they also like you were mentioning earlier have invested a lot of money into new environmental industries such as solar panel development and hydroelectric development you with me I'm with you. <laughs> so just before we even go further, there's a couple of things to keep in mind when we're talking about state capitalism. And that is sort of the ambiguity that surrounds it. Okay. So yeah. like you can probably infer from what I've already said, there's a lot of ways that it manifests, yeah. but there's also, it's sort of difficult to measure. Um, and a lot of experts note that it's difficult to decipher in state capitalist countries who actually has the most power. Is it the government like some people may believe, or is it actually the state-owned enterprises? And I think that this sort of is a balance that it can shift a lot depending yeah. on the country and also depending on the sector. For example, in China, a lot of people argue that the state-owned enterprises in energy have a lot of influence on, for example, energy policy that the I government mean, puts forward. I would suppose that one of the reasons why it's hard to decipher or actually know is because of the nature of China. They are so closed Mm -hmm. Yeah. When it sure. comes to decision making. So mm -hmm. you actually don't know really who makes decisions, what are the priorities, what are the strategies. And I mean, that could go for a lot of countries too. I think another issue is just cultural differences. Y even like when you talk about language interpretation, there's just a lot of things that can get lost, mm -hmm. I think, in, mm -hmm. in that. But that's not it. There's also some other things we need to keep in mind. One being that it's difficult to draw a line often between state-owned enterprises and private companies. And like I said before, because sometimes governments are operating more covertly to influence private companies it's hard to say really how much of a stake they have in in both of those types of organizations and finally context is everything so like i said before state capitalism works better in certain industries than others in china it has worked best in the infrastructure industry and in the raw materials and resource industry where is, has it uh, worked worst And it's worked worse in terms of social development. And, and we'll get to that later also in the program with our interview that we have coming up next. But one of the biggest um, critiques of state capitalism is that it has led to a lot of uneven development across the country. But before we go into the weaknesses, there's a couple of pros of state capitalism mm -hmm. that some people like to mention. They say that state capitalism can boost national pride, especially when you're sort of constantly referring to this rhetoric of, Chinese goods, Chinese companies. Let's so you support. mean national pride in terms of the civil society becoming, uh, you know, like buying Chinese products or like working for just Chinese businesses that kind of has an effect on your mentality. Because as we can see in America with the election of Trump, he sort of promoted this America first, America first, American business, American this, American that. And that's sort of given rise to a lot of this populist sort of nationalistic rhetoric. And so kind of it could go hand in hand in terms of... Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, oh. what's happening in China. Um, another pro of, of state capitalism is that economists argue that state-owned enterprises can help emerging companies compete with the Western world and get their foot in the door in globalization. And as we can see, that is clearly what happened in China. Yeah. Um, when companies kind of have the support of their governments, it's easier for them to get into um, more competitive markets because they have that underlying support whereas other companies might not so it's more of a risk 
And finally, it also makes um, emerging countries, it allows them to learn from sort of the mistakes of the rest of the world. So in China, what they were able to do is look at Western companies that had already kind of adopted globalization and were already out there and see what their weaknesses are and then make their or try to make their businesses, you know, improve upon those flaws that they saw. However, there's also many weaknesses of state capitalism. All right. So one of which I mentioned before, but mostly the biggest one is corruption. A lot of Western, especially liberal economics or liberal economists will say that corruption is still huge in China. And another big weakness that we already mentioned was inequality. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of goes hand in hand with the uneven development across China. Mm -hmm. So um, like we said before, state capitalism works better in some industries than others. And it also favors certain people over other people. And if some people have been left out of the system or haven't been able to really get into the state capitalist world, then they might be left with less opportunity and less social mobility. And you mean that is also the case because um, owning a business in China that is not supported by the state or is not favored by the state uh, in order to grow and in order to expand it's just going to be more difficult it's more difficult than yeah. in a liberal market where yeah. everyone are kind of on the same page mm -hmm. exactly and then going hand in hand with that the last major weakness of state capitalism is the lack of innovation and the decreased production which mainly stems out of the lack of liberty so exactly what you were saying for a small business to sort of be able to make its own decisions and be entrepreneurial and have the liberty to make mistakes or to move into other markets that doesn't exist as much in China. So a lot of scholars argue that while state capitalism might have led to this amazing economic growth for China, maybe it's just that they're being followers. They haven't been leaders yet. They haven't had as much innovation or really in the end of the day, are their companies as productive as ones in the West? And a lot of people critique that and say that in the long term, it's not as sustainable as a model of liberal I know that in reasons. development theory, there is this uh, theory of the big, what do you call it, the big leap? The big, yeah. um, um, the big leap, yeah. The big leap, you call it that? Which is the the amount of time that a developing country has to have a substantial growth before it reaches the standard that countries that have developed has. Yeah. And China has gone through this um, leaping period now for a while and obviously still has some time left. Mm -hmm. But at some time, China will have to translate into uh, information and technology uh, mm -hmm. And society. I mean, they have already started to do that in certain ways. But then that is when innovation is really important. Once yeah. you get there. Yeah. So I guess the scholars, they're not really arguing out of uh, the present moment, but they're mm -hmm. arguing about the future in a way. Mm -hmm. Well, and even how Maria was talking earlier about China and theories. Maybe they will. They will be another anomaly. Maybe no one surprise us. No one knows. Maybe they yeah. have a like a ace in their uh, sleeve, and they will just manual. like throw it out, and they have a plan for all of it. <laughs> exactly. But regardless of whether or not of what will happen in the future, there are some major reasons why the West, especially, and the rest of the global economic market are concerned yeah. about state capitalism in China, and that's because state capitalism it's not just functioning internally in China. It's not just something that goes on in. Um, within the borders obviously like we said before it's something that has gone hand in hand in globalization so that means it has expanded and it continues to expand internationally and interact with different markets all over the world and a major thing that the west and other liberal economists are worried about is the level of fairness in this type of a business model because how can a company who's supported by the state fairly compete with another privately owned company on the international market 
and how do you retain the balance of or the integrity, I guess, of the global international market? China is also really developing a lot of different infrastructure projects. Um, like Marie was saying, they have the Belt and Road Initiative happening across the Middle East. They have investments in America and schools and bridges. They have investments in Southeast Asia in power plants and, and more bridges. Um, and they're also doing a lot of um, oil deals in Africa, especially in Sudan and Angola. But actually also infrastructure in, uh, in Africa. Yeah, um, yeah. In exactly. order to they're also building roads yeah. there as well. Yeah. So And they're also even trying their hand at foreign aid, um, which is something that kind of China hasn't done in the past. And it kind of gives, I think, the West a little bit of a scare that they're all of a sudden having more of an international influence than they were before. And taking responsibility in a way also for international society. Mm-hmm. Like have they stepped up to fill that role of responsibility mm-hmm. yet? And people are also really afraid of sort of this idea of um, state capitalism leading to more xenophobia and protectionism. And What does that mean? So economic protectionism is essentially buying more locally. Um, it's actually less, becoming more involved less in the international market and becoming more at home and sustainable. And it's pretty funny because th- this article that I got this information from was actually from a couple of years ago. And now we see with the election of Trump that that's technically a liberal democracy and it's led to a lot of xenophobia and protectionism. So I think you could really critique that um, and say that it's not that's just what's state happening. capitalism. It's happening all over the world. Yeah. But then I think the really the biggest thing at the end of the day, and it's kind of what you were mentioning before about the BRICS and why they're always mentioned together is because when a lot of people talk, when a lot of scholars talk about the effects of state capitalism, they talk about this axis of statism. So what that is essentially is increased relations and cooperation between Russia, China, India, Brazil, and South Africa. So kind of an alliance forming there between those countries. And I think that that also can be really critiqued. A lot of these countries obviously still have issues and they still have things that threaten to break them apart, but there are certain ways that that it does happen. For example, there's been more bilateral trade between China and Russia as state capitalist countries than than there was before when they were both communist countries. Russia and and Chinese oil companies are very highly intertwined. Again, the Belt and Road Initiative, that has intertwined China much more with Middle Eastern relations. And I think at the end of the day, we have to ask ourselves, will state capitalist countries favor other state capitalist countries over Western or liberal democratic countries? And I think that the issue is that China is still quite against the idea of democracy. And so it's this concern that they'll continue to use their economy and their state-owned enterprises as sort of tools for political gain. And if those political ideals don't include the ideals of democracy or the values of democracy, then what do they include? And especially if they start to have more action overseas, yeah, how will those how will those um, interactions be supported and like with what values, essentially? All right. Thank you, Kylie. Um, You're welcome. I definitely got smarter there. Great. Um, and I... <laughs> Almost. Uh, <laughs> Almost understand. <laughs> Thanks. I appreciate that. It's a it's a heavy topic, but it is. Uh, I mean, one of the really interesting things about um, China's economic growth is also, uh, you know, the domestic situation. Mm. Yeah. How is it? How is what is China? You know, talking about China, this is a huge, huge country. Mm-hmm. So many people living there. So many different. And we've mostly talked about it on an international scale so far. Exactly. So talking about China and the power of China, one actually has to understand China. And mm. we talked to uh, one of the persons in Denmark who knows most about domestic China. 
His name, I'll pronounce it in Danish because I am Danish. I have an advantage here. Is uh, Stig Tøgersen, and he's a professor of Chinese studies at uh, Aarhus University. And he does. Um, actually, I will not present him because I'll let him do that himself. I think <laughs> you should just uh, have a listen. Here he is, Stig. Yeah, my uh, academic background is in uh, China studies originally. I studied at Copenhagen University, and I was mainly interested in language in the beginning. But um, after I went to China in 1974-75, I got more and more interested in the political aspects of what was going on, uh, cultural aspects of, of China, mainly in the rural areas, in Chinese villages, where I've uh, done a lot of interviewing of uh, Chinese farmers and their families about the way their lives have been changing um, over the last decades. What happened in the beginning of the reform period, which means in the early 1980s, was actually that the rural areas were doing quite well. Mm. Traditionally, there's been a sort of gap between the urban areas. In the Mao period, the urban areas were definitely richer than the rural areas. Um, but after decollectivization and the marketization, then the farmers started making more money. But that was only a quite brief period of time, because then the reform wave also reached the cities and the industries. And the, the economic boom in the cities really took off. And from that time on, the urban population were doing much better than the rural, uh, than the farmers. So from the like late 80s and up through the 19s, uh, 1990s and so on, uh, you see a, an increasing gap between rural and urban areas. Mm. And that's been sort of the, the main division line. Now that, that's between rural and urban. Do you think that there are any... Um pros, major pros that China's market has had in its social development? Like, what are the good things that has come out of the reform period and the opening up to globalization in China? Well, the, the economic growth is really remarkable, as, mm. as you can see from all kinds of statistics, right? Yeah. And I can also see it from the people I know personally, how they were living, you know, under very poor conditions uh, back in the 80s when I met them first. And uh, now they really live comfortable lives uh, in, in large flats and yeah. go to Thailand for the, the vacation and, mm -hmm. and so on. And you have a, a large middle class which has really experienced an enormous uh, uh, wealth increase over okay. the last decades. And then alternatively, the major cons that you would see as the opening up to globalization and that reform period. I mean that social security has not developed uh, at the same speed. So you mm. get a lot of people who are without any social safety nets. And they are trying to remedy that now. They are trying mm. to uh, introduce policies uh, for pensions and uh, health insurance and so on. But it's still moving quite slowly. So that's uh, one thing. I, th I also think that um, the feeling in, in China is that much of sense of community has sort of evaporated with these reforms. Mm -hmm. That's uh, uh, very evident in the rural areas. Also because of migration, because you suddenly had a whole generation of people moving out of the villages and into yeah. the cities, um, which left the villages with a lot of old people and in many cases also children, because they were just in the way of their 
uh, I mean, the, the, their parents didn't really have time for them in the city, so they left them with the grandparents. So you had these sort of more or less desolate uh, villages without yeah. people who could really take initiatives and, and get the society going. Mm. So there was a, a feeling, I think, at some stage of, of sort of kind of cultural vacuum in, uh, yeah. in many of the rural areas. Okay. The, the migration is one of the really, really important uh, trends <coughs> in Chinese society. Because in the Maoist period, uh, people simply could not leave the place where they lived. If you were born in one village, you would have to stay there for the rest of your days. If you worked in one particular factory, you couldn't change to another factory or another city. You were, you were simply tied to that place. Mm. Um, and now you have these massive movements of people looking for better opportunities all the time. Right? Mm. And some of them are living under very poor conditions. Um, if you come to some of the larger cities and see the way the construction workers are, are building houses, you know, they get to the fourth floor and then they sleep there and then they build the fifth floor the next mm. day and so on. It's really a t very, very tough life. Yeah. But still they see it as an opportunity, which is somehow better than farming, because farming, it's very difficult to make money from farming in China. Mm. There's so little land per person that you have to be either very lucky or, or very competent in order to make any money. So they still see migration as, as the best um, option. So, so this whole idea of people moving around is something that really changed China completely over mm -hmm. the last decades. So speaking a bit to that inequality between the rural areas and the urban areas, what do you think are the biggest challenges that the rural areas now face? There have been investments in agriculture in okay. China also, but it is very uh, difficult to really create a livelihood in some of these areas okay. because uh, the, the land is just not very good. Mm. Uh, the further you move west in general, the, the poorer the land will be. Maybe you can make a living if you're if you're lucky, but that's about it. Now there are uh, big agribusinesses uh, okay. renting the land from the farmers, mm. um, and may in some cases also hiring these farmers to work for them, and that solves the employment problem at least okay. uh, in some places. But still, the wages are very low, uh, so it doesn't solve the fundamental um, social problems which are then also reflected in a field like education, because education means so much for social mobility in China. Mm -hmm. uh, you really need to go to good schools, to get into university, and so on and so forth, in order to gain from all the things that are happening. And if you start in a rural school, in a village school, um, it's simply very difficult to catch up, because, right. I mean, you don't have the same quality of teachers, and... Uh, um, it's it's just um, you're you're one or two steps behind uh, yeah. from the beginning. Can you say what what is the biggest challenge for the social development in China in the future? I think it is uh, somehow to build a social welfare system, some sort of safety net, right, that can catch yeah. all these uh, people uh, who are now just falling to the bottom of society. So it's the the unemployed, it's uh, the elderly. Uh, you can see the demographic structure of, of China, that uh, uh, the number of citizens over the age of 60 is just growing and growing and growing. Mm. And with the one-child policy, uh, you don't have that many people to actually support them. 
um, so that whole graying of the population uh, calls for uh, pension reforms and a kind of uh, social welfare institutions that can uh, support old people, mm. but also like the unemployed, um, and and still also health is a big issue because mm. it's. Uh, extremely expensive to get ill <laughs> in China. China. Yeah, okay. I mean, if you look at, at, uh, at real poverty, you will find that it's not really a, a question of very low income, but it's normally a question of something happening in your family's lives that's just a disaster. Mm -hmm. And it can be someone who gets cancer or uh, an accident in the workplace or something like that. That's mm -hmm. what really creates poverty. Uh, if you look at the family level, right? Okay. So you need to build some sort of social uh, security system that can um, you know, catch these people. Okay. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. We really appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Thank you so much again to C for coming on our. Is that right? <laughs> it's what fine. What is it? I mean, Ste? it's really hard. The G, you don't have to really see it, say it. You have to be like, Ste. Ste. Ste? Yeah, try, like try Ste. and make your like your chin just go forward as fast as you can. Ste. Right. Ste. 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 There you Ste. go. Ste. Ste. Yeah. Thanks again so much to Ste for coming on our show. We really appreciate it. Really interesting discussion with him, and we hope that you understand a bit more about the internal struggles that China is facing as well as their action on the international stage. Yeah. I uh, I felt like we uh, we covered China uh, as good as uh, we could. In a very general show. <laughs> in a very general show, yeah. We went in a lot of different directions, but uh, hopefully uh, you will have a better understanding now of um, China in international society and also... Mm -hmm. China domestically, mm -hmm. which in the end is just as relevant, I would say. Yes, I think so too. So should we say uh, thank you for listening? Listening. Thank you for uh, <laughs> thank you for listening. staying alive. For staying alive, and hopefully you tune in for in two weeks from now when we'll be discussing terrorism. Mm -hmm.